0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold, and I am so glad that we've got this day together. The sun is kind of out, not really, but I'm optimistic because spring is around the corner. Baseball season starts technically tomorrow, but they've delayed the Twins starting opener. It's not going to be until Friday now, but anyway, things are pointing in the right direction. So uh, I've got a lot to be grateful for, as I always am. If I was a Supreme Court judge, I would have to recuse myself from this case today because I'm speaking to a friend that I have a, a great deal of affection for And his uh, ministry is powerful, and you're going to learn a lot about hospice care today uh, with my friend Bob Solheim. He's the co-director and founder of the N.C. Little Hospice in Edina, Minnesota. And if you're a fan of crossword puzzles, the Southdale Southdale Center is a shopping mall located in Edina, Minnesota. It opened in 1956, and it's both the first and the oldest fully enclosed climate-controlled shopping mall in the United States. That's if you're a crossword uh, puzzle fanatic. But the uh, NC Little Hospice, which has now been around, I think, about 27 years, uh, is also in Edina. So that's uh, just for a point of reference. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Bill. always good to be with you, my friend. I love uh, your ministry. It is one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed. Thank you very much. It is a great
1: privilege, as you could well imagine.
0: I know it is. I've been around. I've been able to witness it, and I've been able to see you uh, and how you live out your days serving the people at this critical time of life. And I think the hospice philosophy, Bob, if you'll uh, correct me on this, it really accepts death as the final stage of life. It affirms life,
1: but it doesn't try to postpone it or hasten it. Death. It accepts it, it affirms it, it, and it cherishes life. Mm -hmm. It is not about dying. Hospice is about living, helping people to live fully to the last breath that, uh, that they draw. Yeah.
0: So how many people, I mean, I think isn't the ideal uh, for people to to have hospice
1: care in their home? Isn't that kind of what they consider the ideal? Yes, that's the traditional method of mm-hmm. hospice care. And about 90% of all hospice is performed in people's homes. Mm-hmm.
0: But also there is, uh, as lovely as that is, there that also comes at a huge emotional and physical uh, price that people pay trying to care for their loved ones.
1: Yes, unfortunately, as uh, many diseases, diseases progress, the um, the the disease just doesn't take the course that people may always anticipate and expect. Yeah. Symptoms can get out of control, pain is escalating, and the nights become long, and the families just don't know what to do. With it's the exhausting, isn't it? yeah. it's just exhausting. Yeah. Well, your
0: uh, beginnings into this ministry is so interesting, uh, how you uh, came to... Uh, start the NC Little Hospice, and also your relationship with the person that you named it after, Newton Little. I'd love for you to tell that story
1: because I think it's so it's so powerful. Sure, I'll do my best to to capsulize this. New Little was um, in his mid sixties when I first met him as a twenty one year old newlywed, and uh, we just moved into an apartment across the street from him. He and his wife ran a place called Little Press. They did a lot of uh, church work, bulletins, wedding announcements, and brochures and things like that in the, in the community. And I was a young court reporter in need of some, some uh, supplies like uh, billheads, letterheads, things like that. And so I made an acquaintance with him and a friendship developed. Actually, his son, who was killed in an accident just uh, shortly before meeting me, Uh, I think that I reminded him of his son a bit. His son had an eye on the ministry, and he was just a fine young man, Mm -hmm. as I understand it. But a friendship developed that lasted his lifetime, some 25 years. The last few years, last five years of his life, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and the doctor thought that he would live six months. Instead, he lived five years. Unfortunately, the last two years of his life, he was relegated to a nursing home and as time progressed and his disease uh became more symptomatic to uh, to him uh, it it just uh he just didn't receive the level of care as a dying person that uh, he would have received had he just been continuing to age in place mm-hmm. and uh he loved to have scripture read to him he was a deeply committed christian man And particularly the Psalms. He said, Bob, I need to be bathed in the Word. Mm -hmm. And so every day for over two years, I I read scripture to him. We sat, we prayed, we met with uh, other patients, and pretty soon other people were being wheeled into Newt's room so they could participate in our little miniature Bible study. (laughs) And he died a rather ignominious death at uh, age 90 in 1992. And uh, while I was with them for those two years, I, I just felt that there had to be something better for people that were facing their end days. Uh, the nursing home that he was in was a very nice place and had very nice staff. The trouble is they were they were insufficient. Mm-hmm. You have low wages, high turnover, insufficient training, inadequate staffing, and it's a perfect, perfect recipe for difficulty as the end-of-life approaches. And... Uh, Unfortunately he had he had a very difficult death in this place. And I just uh wasn't very familiar with death and dying at that time. You're twenty one years old. Yeah. Right? Well at this time I would have been forty. Oh, okay. Yeah. About oh 40, you met him when you were 21?
0: Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. Okay.
1: And it was uh shortly after he died that a uh, business associate of mine had a parent. That uh, worked as a chaplain in a facility that provided end-of-life care. It wasn't licensed as a hospice but they did similar work and asked me if I would go there and assist as a volunteer Mm -hmm. and I resisted doing that. I said I've been around death and dying and illness for the last two years plus and I really have no interest in that. But uh, this associate of mine continued to sort of badger me and encourage me to do this and I ended up uh, committing to one month one Friday night a week, and uh, see how that would go. And that turned into three years as a volunteer in this place. And Mm -hmm. for me, it was life-changing. But the place I was working at, they did not have a sustainable business model, and it eventually failed. But I uh, was excited to be able to, together with one of the nurses from this organization, develop uh, a plan for what would become the NC Little Memorial Hospice in Mm -hmm. tribute to my friend Newt a place that offered a, what we think is a, a lot higher level of care for people that are facing end-of-life issues, mm-hmm. and not just the patient, but their families and friends as well.
0: Yeah. So I want to back up just a little bit. I want to go to 40-year-old Bob going every day, and when I say every day, I mean every day. You didn't miss a day for two years. That's you right. would go to this nursing home and sit by at the bedside of your friend and read Scripture.
1: Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I later became a chaplain at this nursing home mm-hmm. for almost thirty years. Wow. So as a volunteer chaplain. I get yeah. it. But you're making yourself
0: available serving your friend lovingly without any agenda.
1: No, but I received so much in return I know from you this did. man. He yeah. was just a a a brother in Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh he was a a business mentor as well. He okay. Was, a very successful small business owner, and uh, he was just a joy to be with. Yeah. So
0: out of that comes uh, a lot of discussions, planning, and the move to acquire a property and start a hospice where people would come for their end of life. Yes. And that was how many years ago? Well, it was 1994
1: that the decision was made. I was in concert with my pastor at that time, Bill Smith, who was a professor of... um, pastoral counseling and care at luther theological seminary and he was a a longtime friend of my pastor growing up and and uh in lengthy conversations with him i said this would be quite a uh, change in life and uh, and in my family situation and he and i prayed about it and just agreed this was the right thing to do and and to go for it and mm-hmm. we did so 1994 was the 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 genesis of the little hospice 19 19- yeah. Late in 94, we incorporated and in 1995 obtained a nonprofit status and we were able to raise funds to start working towards developing this hospice. Yeah,
0: Rosie, I, you, you got to jump in on this because I, you just got to give some feedback. I mean, he starts lovingly going and reading scripture every day, not missing a day, and then look what happens. I know. Well, it's the hand of God in obedience, right? Sometimes yes, it is. God is preparing our heart in the little things and trusting you with something little and consistent and you just are obedient and you show up and God says, I'm going to use that. He wastes absolutely nothing. And you know, um, Bob, as you're talking, it reminds me of Genesis 50, 20, where, you know, death can be difficult and that's part of the evil part of our world. But God says, I will make it unto good for the betterment of other lives. Mm. And I feel like your relationship with and NC uh, with Newt, was was that, was God doing that for the betterment of other lives? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said, Rosie. Yes. Anytime. <laughs> so good. All right. We're going to continue our discussion on hospice and hospice care with uh, Bob Solheim. He's the director, uh, co-director and co-founder of NC Little. It's an eight-bed hospice in Edina, uh, Minnesota. But it, it, it's really, it's a model, role model for how this should happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was just an article in the New York Times about Two weeks ago, two yes. weeks yeah, two weeks ago, and boy, didn't they uh, mention the NC little hospice? Well, not by name, but everyone knew who it was. Uh, reading this as uh, an incredible place. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. If you have a question about hospice, that's what we're going to be discussing today. Not always the happiest topic, and not always the easiest topic to talk about, but a good one uh, to face and to confront. You can send a text, a question, or a comment to eight seven seven nine three three. 2484 again, 877 2484. Be right back. music for today. And our topic, we're talking to Bob Solheim. He is the co-director and co-founder of uh, Eight Bed Hospice right here in Edina, Minnesota. I've known Bob for years and his ministry is amazing. And we're going to talk a little bit later about the different kinds of experiences people have on their deathbed for those who are in Christ and those who are uh, not interested in anything spiritual. And they have very different experiences in the end we'll chat about that a little bit, but Bob, let's maybe start at the very uh, beginning and just say what what is hospice care?
1: hospice care is is one of the least understood parts of medicine in in America today uh, Let me just start out by saying why why think about end of life last year in America, there were three million four hundred thousand deaths that's over 9,300 people every day that die in Say that America. again.
0: How many every day? 9,300 every day every in the Every single day okay. in the
1: United States. In Minnesota last year, there were 52,000 deaths, and uh, that means that there were approximately 143 people in our state that died every single day. Okay. And so it was some 34 centuries ago that Moses penned the words, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that mm-hmm. we might attain a heart of wisdom. And I mm-hmm. think... What that is probably referring to is, you know, where will I be when I die? What will my symptoms be like? What will my illness be? Will I be alone? Will I be in the presence of those who love me? What will it be like? And as we say here today, nobody really knows for sure, but there is some planning that can, that can take some of that uncertainty away, and that's, that's what hospice is about. It's really an ancient concept uh, that is refined today where of people helping people. Uh, We define hospice as a comprehensive, medically directed, team-oriented program of care that seeks to treat and comfort terminally ill patients at home or in a home-like setting like little hospice, Mm -hmm. where we establish pain management and symptom control as clinical goals. But we recognize fully that the psychological, the social, and certainly the spiritual part of dying is every bit as significant as the physical part. Mm -hmm. So... It's a it's a type of caring that helps people truly live until they die without the fear of dying alone, in pain, or with their symptoms out of control. And finally, it's a philosophy that accepts death as a natural part of life and seeks to neither hasten nor postpone death's natural advance. Many people believe that when you enter hospice, you just go in there, you close your eyes, and you face death. And that's not the case at all. Like at Little Hospice, when families come here, we help people truly live until they die and to do as many things as they possibly can and to have the kind of closure that you would wish for your best friend. Mm. Day after day, time after time, we have experiences like this.
0: And, Bob, there's uh,
1: what I've witnessed
0: there is an unprecedented uh, uh quality of service, not only for patient care, but for caring for the loved ones that are there, uh, facing the loss of their loved one. And just in terms of the way that you have always fussed over people and made them feel at home and welcome. And prior to the COVID pandemic, there there was family meal time. Yes. And you would say to the family, what, what does the family want for dinner tonight? Yeah. They'd go, I don't know, steak and lobster. You go, steak and lobster
1: yeah. it is. We've, yes, that's not. That's <laughs> exactly right. We have a patient right now. Most of our patients aren't big eaters when they come right. there. Family might it's, be. It's the end of life, and the families—they're good eaters. Yeah. yeah. But uh, we have a patient right now who's uh, uh, whose disease is one that uh, doesn't impact or impede her ability to enjoy food. Okay, and we get her lobster. Nice. We, whatever she wants, she <laughs> yeah. can have. Yeah. And uh, we're just a nine iron away from a buyerly store. And yeah. so we're able to get them just to start That's a grocery store there. for those of you who don't live
0: in the area. Yeah. Um, but also you've gone out and gotten you know, White Castle hamburgers at 2 in the morning for people, haven't you?
1: <laughs> of course. It doesn't get more deluxe than that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but just the response time, there's always a 30-second response. If someone hits the buzzer, you're always yeah. going to be serving them within 30 seconds. and.
1: Um, just the way you care for the rooms and everything else. its uh, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. You're right. Uh, that's a good point to make. Every single call light in the house is answered within 30 seconds or less. It's, mm-hmm. it's not an objective or a goal. It's hardwired to what we do. Then from an administrative standpoint, our responsibility is to staff the hospice in such a way that our nurses can be successful with that. Mm-hmm. So we have some 30 registered nurses on staff at Little Hospice and yeah. 10 interdisciplinary People along with uh, eight um, nursing assistants. Mm-hmm. So we're very well staffed for yeah. just eight
0: patients. So across the country, how many uh, places like NC Little are there? Is there is there a, still a large community of them? Are they are they uh, are there fewer of them nowadays? No. What, what direction are, is it going?
1: Yeah the the federal government in 1983 in the Medicare Act that uh, allowed payment for hospice, the legislative intent was that it would keep people out of facilities, oh. hospitals specifically, and at that time there were just a very small handful in 1983 of something called a residential hospice. In Minnesota, I don't know what our population is exactly, but something over five million people, and uh, and there are only 14 residential hospices. And only four in the Twin Cities for well over two million mm-hmm. population. In the country, it isn't much different. It, a lot of it has to do with finances. Uh, it's a it's a medical facility. When when uh, hospices were first developed back in the, the 1970s, and uh, it, it actually as late as 1996, when we opened our doors, there were. The there weren't any residential hospices that were for profit. They were all either not for profit or volunteer were um, organized. Mm-hmm. So times have changed now. Seventy percent of all hospices, residential and and uh, in the and the home care hospice programs are for profit. Mm-hmm. And I'm not opposed to the for profit motives, but. Um, At Little Hospice, we are a not-for-profit organization. We don't have uh, shareholders that have to be paid before decisions are made beyond that. That's the
0: way I think it should be. Bob Solheim is my guest. He's the co-founder and co-director of uh, 8 Bed Hospice here in the Twin Cities called NC Little. But we're talking about hospice in general today. And that's a scary word, especially if you have a loved one, and that word comes up. And, Bob, I think you can, uh, you know, maybe put to rest that it's not necessarily a scary word. It's a welcoming word, isn't it? Right, I mean, our bodies
1: know how to die, don't they? Yeah, if we just listen to them, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so talk about uh, when you hear the word hospice when uh when does someone qualify for
1: hospice? because I know people well, who have been on hospice care for years, yeah, yeah, in order to qualify first of all, you have to have a terminal illness and it should be measured by six months or less to live if it follows its normal course, mm-hmm. but in good faith, your physician would have to certify to that. And then that would allow you to qualify for a hospice Medicare benefit. That would build a community around you of a medical director, chaplain, social worker, um, uh, nurses, home health aides, music therapist, massage therapist, mm-hmm. sometimes a speech or physical therapist. And uh, this community would would support you throughout your your illness. But the key thing is. Have a terminal diagnosis with a prognosis of six months or less to live. Yeah. And the whole point is we're going to live life to the
0: fullest until you stop breathing, right? That's exactly right. And it's going to be, we're going to do everything we can and make a difference.
1: The whole process about hospice is, is that it works to make the most of what time is left. And the idea is to help patients uh, to feel more comfortable and less frightened and the dying process more bearable, not just for the patient, but also for their families and friends that are at their bedside. Hospice then emphasizes palliative or comfort care, keeping the patient pain free and focusing on the relief of symptoms. We don't mm-hmm. try to, we're not seeking a cure at this point, yeah. but it's aggressive pain management. And if a person has pain in their life, that's all that they have in that moment. It's it. And hospice is so expert at at relieving the pain and keeping the person not just pain free but as alert as possible yeah. during this time and you know one of the concerns uh most many of us have experienced in our lives is we've had loved ones in hospital settings where they've been on ventilators or things that you know the lots of high tech medical paraphernalia that actually creates emotional and physical barriers between the patient and their family true. In hospice, we don't have that you don 't see a lot of bells and whistles on mm-hmm. our on our patients yeah. it's, uh, they're, it's end of life Carol. it's end of life and they're getting it's what we call high touch and low tech mm-hmm. lots of love. Our patients rarely go into a room to talk to a patient where they don't embrace the patient in some way, whether they 're massaging their arm or their their leg or mm-hmm. or comforting them in some way with some physical contact that indicates affection and genuine care for them. care, and And we love you. Yeah, and we love you, and it reduces tension and allows for for a different kind of healing to unfold. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, very powerful. Well, I know we're going to have time for some questions. Uh, If you have a question regarding hospice care, we still have a lot of questions I want to ask Bob, but if you have a question yourself, uh, one already popped up, Bob, and I know it's going to probably appear more than once, and we'll talk about that on the other side of the break and that is uh, what is the cost for duration of care. I'm sure that's a concern everybody has.
1: Absolutely. They
0: want to know what is this yeah. going to cost. Uh, but I'm going to also uh take your questions. Let me know what what they are. 877 933 2484. Not the most uh easy topic to talk about, but a good one to talk about. Um, and it's important to understand what what hospice is and what hospice care is and how does someone qualify, and who becomes the primary caregiver, and all kinds of good questions. Bob Solheim is my guest. He's the co-founder and co-director of NC Little, which is an eight-bed hospice right here in the Twin Cities. But there are a little um, there are places like his all over the country. They're just not nothing as good as this one. All right, we'll take a short break and be right back. In your car, uh, Bob Solheim is my guest and friend in studio. We're talking about hospice care. He is the co-founder and co-director of an eight-bed hospice right here in the Twin Cities. And uh, it is sometimes a very scary word, and we're trying to make it less scary and also talk about end of life. Our bodies do know how to die, and sometimes the best thing is is to let it happen because God knows exactly how many days we have ordained before we even had one of them. And Bob, I'd love to ask a little bit, because I know you are also uh, work as a, in the chaplain capacity at the um, hospice, and I'm wondering, when you talk bedside to people, what questions do they have as they're facing end of life?
1: Well, probably the most frequently asked question is, what do you think happens after death? Yeah, what, I would imagine so. You know, and and I remind them that, uh, you know, the author of life, our... Uh, Certainly of the scriptures that we that we are so beloved to us remind us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So mm-hmm. the first thing is you're going to be present with the Lord. If you're saved. If, if you're, you're saved. born again. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. And that I has not seen, ear heard, or the mind of man conceived what yep. God's prepared for you. So it's going to really be nice. And mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the thief on the cross that didn't have much time to <laughs> repent, and yet today he was promised he'd be in paradise with Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we try to provide life affirming comments to them, eternal life affirming comments, but also to to provide them comfort that uh, that it, God does not turn away people that that come to Him and uh, and accept Him as as his pers- as their the person, Savior. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, so a lot of them come from perhaps a denominational or a religious background where they feel they haven't adhered to it as uh, to the rules as they perhaps should have mm-hmm. and that now they're in jeopardy when they die that there may be maybe an intermediate state that they're going to or or worse yet that they would mm-hmm. be relegated to hell and uh, so that can be very problematic for people we can deal with the psychological the social and sometimes the spiritual part of death, but for people who don't have any spiritual part, then we have an existential problem that is more painful sometimes than physical pain. Right. And uh, that's the most challenging person that we have, and yet it's the one that we're seeing more than ever. We call them the nuns. Mm -hmm. We have an admission agreement that they have to complete, or the family does for them, and there's a, a spiritual assessment in there, and when they identify what their religious background is or denomination probably half of the people we see today are putting in the word none, N-O-N-E. And that is so disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, they—if if there's a continuum of death from those that have the most difficult death to those that have the, be- the best, most uh, comfortable death, it's a continuum of those who have the deepest and most abiding faith. Yeah, there, There's just no question about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it isn't that we can't meet the physical challenges of somebody without a faith, because we can, we can do that. But that existential piece that I mentioned, that we can't, that's a hard one to penetrate.
0: Right. Because anyone can come to the hospice, right? Absolutely. And you have some believers and some atheists. Yeah. And so you would be lovingly taking care of them, lovingly taking care of their family and... Then you come to their bedside and ask about spiritual things, and they push you away and say, "Not interested." Yeah,
1: we don't want a chaplain at all. We don't don't want any yeah. God talk. Yeah, and they're adamant about wow. it. Wow, wow, yeah.
0: I, I would but, think there'd be more, um, a little bit more inquisitive, yeah. at that point.
1: Who was it? Uh, the ancient philosopher that talked about the divine gamble? Yeah, Blaise Pascal. Blaise, yeah, yeah.
0: everything yeah, the to wager. It. Yeah, yeah. But what is the experience like? I know uh, you've experienced in excess of five thousand people yes. who have passed uh, on, and the people who have uh, been filled with Christ and have died at peace with the Lord—they uh, have largely had very peaceful endings, haven't they? Yes. Some of the ones who have been yeah. atheist, agnostic—you've uh, you've witnessed, I think, because you've shared this with me—they've kind of gone kicking and screaming.
1: Yeah. I mean, literally,
0: some are screaming, aren't they? Yeah. yeah.
1: We've had some challenges like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, that's not very often. I but, get that. But it's uh, it's in the mix with mm-hmm. 5,400 deaths. Yeah. The
0: whole idea that you, you are at death's door and your heart is still
1: yeah. uh, unwilling. In, in the wow. traditional hospice that we talked about at the very beginning, uh, wow. where people have continuous care in their homes... Uh, the the average length of stay in that type of hospice program is 89 days, according to the National Hospice and Palliative Care Association. But the median length of stay in that setting is only 18 days. Mm-hmm. Now, at Little Hospice, we have people that have normally been in that setting first, and then they're referred to us because the symptoms became unmanageable. They've been escalating. and and they, they need 24-hour skilled nursing care. Mm-hmm. At our house, because they come so late in their illness, um, our average length of stay last year was only six days, and the median length of stay is only four days. Mm-hmm. So we're really doing crisis management from the nursing skill to the chaplaincy work to to all components, Yeah, um, trying to bring the families on board with how fast things are, are moving along and having them... Uh, understand the process that, that is unfolding mm-hmm. and uh, reasons for different medications and shifts as we're trying to, to meet the changing needs of the patient. Um, it's, it's an interesting time. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Bob, you've shared with me some stories that I, I, my, my jaw kind of hits the table because they're so amazing, um, the way God does some pretty amazing supernatural things at the end of life. I don't know if there's a story oh, yeah. or two we could talk about. Obviously, we're not naming names, of course, but sure. just experiences. Uh, yeah. I know there was a, a woman in particular who was like in a uh, motionless coma for quite a while. Yes. And then um, if you tell that, that that story, just makes me smile.
1: Yeah, it's one that puts a smile on our nurses' faces as well. Because it was so so remarkable. We had a patient that had been with us for a total of about three weeks, and uh, her husband was with us. Daily and overnight. He just couldn't couldn't leave her side. They mm-hmm. were both in, they were in there. Uh, she was seventy-five and he was a probably a similar age. And she was a, a nurse, the patient was, and she was dying of lung cancer, and she had gone unresponsive, and she had been unresponsive for at least seven days. And the end was now drawing near. Sure, her body was mottled. Sure, she had turned, her legs were blue, and she her breathing had changed, and she was clearly at, at the end of life. So unresponsive and, and, for seven days. For seven days, okay. no food, no water. Just laying there motionless. And her husband sitting there holding her hand and, and just telling her how deep in the binding his love is for her yeah. and how much he's going to miss her and things like that. But now the end was right there. And we it was late at night, and we had a nurse on either side of the bed mm-hmm. at, uh, at the upper part of her body. And then he was sitting right in the middle holding her hand and, and just telling her, Connie, I love you, I love you. And all of a sudden, she sat up in bed, and she looked at him, and she said, Bill, I love you, too. And she laid back down, and she died. Wow. And our nurses were absolutely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. As was Bill. Yeah. <laughs> and you talk about a final yeah. gift. Yeah. Um, it's, where does that uh, stuff come from? I don't know. Yeah. We, we had a physician a while ago who had, uh, had come to us and uh, had been with us for a couple of weeks and had gone into a, an unresponsive state for several, uh, several days. But when he came, he came on a stretcher because he couldn't walk. He, he, was, uh, he was just in uh, very bad shape. And somehow, we had the four side rails up. He was able to climb over the side rails, come to the end of the bed, and take the—there's the, a railing in the very back of the bed, too, that uh, he lifted up and moved in, and had his hands in prayer, and he was bowed on his knees, and he was dead. Oh, my. He had died in prayer. A man. So he's
0: laying on the bed unresponsive. He's not— He yeah. even turned off the center, sensors because there's no need, exactly. right? right. And when you see him, he's kneeling at his bedside with his hands folded.
1: Yeah, wow. and, and he had died. And <laughs> see, he,
0: if I didn't know you, I'd say you were making that up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I would too.
0: <laughs> I would say you're nuts, but I know you,
1: yeah. so you're not. Well, We've had a lot of really powerful things happen. You know, there's, there's a fellow that belonged to a local free church here uh, who is, uh, I, I think you probably even know him. He was a magician, and, uh, he I won't only admit did, to knowing him, but go ahead. He only did gospel magic. Okay. And now you know who I'm talking about. And he was in his 80s and just a, a prince of a guy. And he was with us for over a month, and his Bible study group came and met with us several times during that time. And and he would tell me, he says, you know, Bob, I, I'd say to him, i say, how can you be so joyful? You're, you're, you you're have all these physical things that are happening to you, and you know that, that the end is drawing near. And he said, yeah, but... How can I? How can I lose? He said, "If if, to to live is Christ, to die is gain." Mm -hmm. Said so. If I die, and when I die, I will I will have gained Christ, Mm -hmm. and I will I will gained eternity, and see my families and friends that have gone before me. And if I don't die, if some miraculous thing occurs, I have my family here that loves me. Said I am the luckiest guy alive. And he died that way, at peace. And uh, with his family surrounding him, it, it was just a it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of that happening. But you asked me to to tell a story, and I was thinking about a story that continues to to touch our hearts. And it's, it's somebody that I think uh, you may have known as well. He uh, he was at an event that we were at together, and, and there was a magic trick with a fancy necktie involved. Mm-hmm. But his wife had come to the little hospice. She was uh, an airline stewardess, hostess, attendant, and uh, they owned a llama farm in Medina. Mm. And she had a favorite llama that had given birth to a 40-pound llama, and now she was at the hospice and was dying. She couldn't get out of bed. So her husband put the mother llama and the baby llama in a trailer and drove them to the back of the house. (laughs) And we have atrium doors, Mm -hmm. if you remember that, in the back of the hospice. And she she was alert, and we opened the atrium doors, and we brought the mama llama up on the deck so she could see when we brought the baby llama and put it into the bed with the patient who cradled that... And just loved that little baby llama up oh, for a long time. So cute! With mother outside, nestling up against the, the glass, wondering what's happening to her <laughs> child.
0: <laughs> yeah, very sweet, yes. very touching. I know you've guys, so, uh, you guys—you have gone to great lengths to provide last uh, experiences for people too. I know there was a man who's forty years old who was dying of cancer, and he wanted to have on Easter Sunday his daughter. And her friends enjoy a little Easter egg hunt. So you had all that prepared in the backyard. And he was able to sit up in his wheelchair and watch his daughter and her friends run around celebrating in the backyard and and, uh, just having a great day. And he died that night.
1: Yeah. Your memory is very Yeah, I I do remember some stuff.
0: Yeah, those are amazing stories. Let me take a little break. If you've got a question uh, about hospice care or maybe you've got a story that you'd like to share as well. It's a... uh, A topic that is not easy to talk about, but it's a great person to talk to about it, is Bob Solheim, co-founder and co-director of the NC Little Hospice right here in the Twin Cities. But there are little hospices, well, I mean, there's only one, but there's hospices probably in your neighborhood. And when we come back, I will uh, ask Bob, what kind of questions should you ask if you're going to decide to take your loved one to a facility like NC Little? We'll be right back. With Bob Solheim, co-founder, co-director of NC Little Hospice, right here in the Twin Cities. Bob, a couple questions that have come in. I'm an acoustic guitarist, experienced in worship music, and heard of the term music therapy being a part of hospice. What is it and what would it take to become a music therapist, to the best of your knowledge? To the best of my
1: knowledge. To the best of my knowledge, the um, music therapist uh profession is just that. It's a real profession uh, within hospice. There is a program at the University of Minnesota, I know, that has, I believe it's a five-year plan for you to to become a a music therapist. And it's a really big deal. When we first had music therapy, first came to the little hospice, I thought it was going to be corny. Mm -hmm. But instead, I found it to be deeply valuable for many, many patients and their families um, to, it, it's just incredible the the healing nature of music. I just never believed it, it could be as powerful as it is. But it's uh, we we often will have family members or friends that just come over and play music for their loved ones. But it just isn't the same. Mm-hmm. Um, the large the hospital programs all have music therapists, and a number of the of the for-profit home care programs do as well. Um, but that would be a place to start is to, uh, to see whether or not these programs would, would have a need for somebody that didn't have the education that, that the profession really, I think, demands.
0: Mm-hmm. Bob, talk about, uh, respite care. What does that term mean and how do you describe it?
1: Well, respite care is, um, there are four levels of hospice care that, that the Medicare benefit provides. And the first is the routine hospice care which is the most common, about 90% of the people have that just in their homes where there would be a, uh, a nurse visiting two or three times a week or more if necessary. Uh, there'd be a massage therapist and perhaps uh, the other therapies coming out, home health aides and things like that, and there'd be a medical director in the background overseeing the care. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sometimes if the caregiver, which is often an elderly person, because most of our patients are in their 70s, yeah. 80s, and 90s, they give out. And so the Medicare benefit will pay for up to one week for someone, for a patient to go into a hospital or nursing home setting that is Medicare certified mm. and give the caregiver a break sure. for a week. That's uh, that's probably
0: critical for the well-being. I mean, because mm-hmm. the person who's caring for them is
1: yeah. probably at the end of their rope, too. And then there's also a general inpatient mm-hmm. uh, benefit if uh, pain is, uh, is has become intractable, but that may not last as long as the, um, uh, well, the general inpatient care is just for pain control, I believe, mm-hmm. and other symptoms, but uh, usually when it's pain that gets out of hand and they have to have uh, IV therapy or something mm-hmm. in a hospital setting.
0: Bob, another question that's come up a couple times is, uh, what is the cost of, of uh, uh, care like this if you're going to a facility, a hospice facility? What would you expect to be paying and is this uh, covered at all by any kind of
1: insurance or is this right out of your pocket or how does that work? Yeah, there are long-term care programs that cover hospice care or at least a portion of it. At Little Hospice, we charge $600 a day for our services and basically our cost is closer to a $1,000 a day per person, mm-hmm. but we raise funds during the year to make up the difference. Sure. And so the 600 a day is really to pay for the 24-hour nursing care. Mm-hmm. If you do the math on it, it's about $25 an hour to have a, a, a two, three, or four registered nurses on duty 24 hours a day to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, call lights being answered immediately. But the beauty of the traditional hospice care, the home care, traditional one, is that that's free of charge. That's part A in, in your Medicare benefit. Mm-hmm. Can
0: uh, a hospice patient uh, leave? I mean, if they have a little
1: uh, reprieve in, yes. in their health condition? Yes, and many leave. do. Mm-hmm. Really? Many will. Uh, there are certain illnesses that people sometimes, their symptoms can be well controlled. So they bounce they can, back a little, huh? Yep. And uh, they'll leave hospice for a while and then come back in it. And uh, there are people that do that for a period of years. Mm-hmm. What about volunteers? Well, uh, volunteers are a requirement of hospice. Mm -hmm. It's not just a joy to have volunteers, but they are in many ways the heartbeat, the most selfless of people that you'll ever want to meet. I bet. In the traditional home care environment, some 21 million hours were Uh, donated by 450,000 volunteers last year. At Lowell Hospice, we had about 7,000 hours donated by probably 75 volunteers Mm -hmm. in the course of the year. We lost some during the pandemic, and we've recovered Mm -hmm. most of them now. Do a lot of the volunteers
0: start because they had an experience of losing a loved one and they want to return and
1: be helpful? Is that how a lot of that starts? Yes, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them have... Some personal interest along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the
0: condition is such that the family are, is saying to you, can we speed this up a little bit? Because we know what the end is going to look like. Um, do you ever get
1: confronted with that? We do more now than we ever had before. Interesting. It's very distressful. Because I bet. It has to do with the change in laws. There are 11 states now that have what they call death with dignity laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, Physician-assisted suicide is another name. Um, Right to die laws. Um, I refer to them as duty to die laws because of the impact that it has on the most marginalized and vulnerable people in our society. Mm -hmm.
0: And Bob, you have been there 27 years, is that right? Yes, we're in our 20... 26th year, okay. but we worked on it yeah, for almost three it. years. Yeah, going. yeah, and you have um, seen a lot of people leave this earth. And would you say that most of the people that have been uh, under your supervision have been uh,
1: men, women? Yes, uh, 60%. 60% right percent on is, the, what? is uh 60% of our patients are going to be men. Okay, really? And uh, 40% women. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the
0: uh, patient ages that you've seen? I'm sure it's been heartbreaking um, to see younger people, of course. But, uh, excuse me, repeat the question. Uh, the ages? Yeah, just over all the years. Uh, what would you say about the the age of the patients that come in? Um, mostly older, but I'm sure you've seen younger ones as well.
1: Two thirds of our patients are over 65. Okay, and uh, and over half are over. 82, I think it is. So we have very few people in their 20s, rarely, 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40s, we start picking up some malignant uh, cancers sure. and, uh, and then heart disease mainly in the 50s and mm-hmm. on into the 60s and
0: above. Mm-hmm. And then when you have an opportunity to pray with somebody and someone says, look, at I, I want to be right with God, and they get to that place, is there is there anything more satisfying than walking out of that room thinking they're going to see the face of Jesus? Yeah.
1: It's a remarkable thing about what unfolds in our patient's room as death draws near and, mm-hmm. uh, and the moment of death when it occurs. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a powerful experience and it's a privilege beyond words to know that something mysterious yet universal has happened that yeah. is so profound that at some point the soul, I believe has left the body and going to be with the Lord. And we were there at that, moment. Yeah. It's ex- extraordinary.
0: Yeah. I, I would imagine it, it is. Um, and you're probably
1: not in the least bit afraid of being around death. Are you? No, no, <laughs> but I sure was. Were you? Yeah. After my friend new little died, yeah, I really resisted it. And yet I saw that it wasn't something to be afraid of or to fear. It's a very natural thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Oddly enough, this gentleman that I talked about, whose wife died and sat up and said, I love you, Bill. He later came, about five years later, came as a patient, and he was afraid himself to die. And one of his closing words to me were, Bob, this hasn't been so bad at all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because when Jesus comes for you, um, I would think, you know, that'd be pretty remarkable. Yeah, pretty outstanding. Yeah, so... Uh, what a powerful ministry you've had what an incredible uh life you've led and what uh what a what a beautiful um you know legacy you've had with so many families i know families have come back and said to you uh our experience was amazing and it was so much of thanks to you and your staff
1: well we have a, a staff that is the strength of organization that are deeply committed, loving people. Mm -hmm. Another question just popped in, Bob. uh, Do you think there's a spiritual aspect to the
0: terminal patient and the lack of desire, unwillingness to eat?
1: Or do you think that's just the body just shutting down? Um, You know, the issue of nutrition and hydration comes up a lot in hospice. And when we listen to our bodies, our body is telling us that we shouldn't be eating now because if we're not processing food, if our system isn't working it's going to accelerate the dying process it's going to make us feel more miserable and the fluid will uh, will rise up in our lungs and give us uh, a pneumonia and it will just be miserable mm-hmm. we'll have all kinds of bad symptoms and yet families we equate nutrition hydration with vitality right but at this point that's we're going to live longer and better if we listen to our bodies and mm-hmm. just eat small amounts or, or forego it entirely. Yeah. So yeah.
0: interesting. Bob, thank you so much for talking about this uh, difficult subject, but you did it so beautifully. Thank you so much for um, being with me today. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. It's been a privilege. It's been great. We're going to take a little break, and then when we uh, return, and I'm excited about that, we are going to be uh, talking an Old Testament character, Naomi. And I, and I can't believe my whole life I've said that name wrong. You're going to find out how to say it correctly in Hebrew from Dr. Rebecca Ree. I'm so glad that Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be talking to her. We're going to talk about the book of Ruth and Naomi. That's all coming up next.